Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Friday, May 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. And I'd also like to thank you, those of you who tune in and those who generously support KFUO with your prayers and donations. You know, it's Friday, but it's still not too late for you to still be a part of Sherathon. Your gift of any amount is greatly appreciated. You can visit kfuo.org and click on the Sherathon banner at the top, or you can call Mary at 314-996-1518. That's visit kfuo.org or call 314-996-1518. Thank you for your support. Well, today is the first Friday of May, and as such, today's episode is a free text first Friday episode where we depart for just one day of the month from whatever book we're covering, which currently is 1 Samuel, and we talk about something different. The question before us this morning is, is it ever appropriate for a pastor to decline to perform a funeral for someone? I mean, some people think that pastors are obligated, or at least should be always willing to, officiate a funeral for anyone who asks. But my guest this morning says, not so fast. There are plenty of good reasons for a pastor to decline to officiate a funeral, and we're going to talk about those today. So to explore this topic, then, I'm pleased to introduce as my guest the Reverend Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. Good morning, Pastor Smith, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's great to be here with you and your listeners today. Yeah, it's great to have you, and boy, your voice sounds familiar on the radio. It's nice to hear you. Uh, Pastor Smith is the former host of Concord Matters, uh, but he has since taken a call and some other things. Uh, share up with the listeners a little bit about what's been going on with you lately. Well, yeah, actually, about a year ago, uh, May 1st, I was installed as pastor here in Bethlehem, uh, here at Bethlehem in Mason City. And uh, I had continued as the host of Concord Matters, which uh, um, I had done for several years uh, prior to taking the call and um, thought I could continue that into the call and, and uh, for a few months that worked out, uh, but then life just gets overwhelming in the parish, as you know, uh, especially when you take new calls and things like that. And uh, the Lord blessed us uh, with a third child and uh, uh, born a month after we moved here and just life was way overwhelming. And I said, I need to step away and uh, focus on settling into my pastoral ministry um, here in uh, Mason City and care for my family, uh, growing family, and uh, lots of rich blessings. And so I stepped away from host of Concord Matters. Brady Finner took over and has been doing an excellent job. Of course, you took over from him on this show. And That's right. uh, there's just been a lot of changes in the last year. So, but uh, great to be back on with you today. Oh, well, it's great to have you on. And so, yeah, so you have a wife and you have how many children now? Well, uh, so my wife, Heather, uh, and I have been married uh, for five years now and uh, have three children um, now, but uh, we're actually just announcing today even uh, that uh, uh, the Lord has blessed us with a fourth that will be due in November. So uh, our family continues to grow by the Lord's oh, blessing. So 
Congratulations on that. I figured if it was on Facebook, it was fair for the radio. Hopefully that's all right. So I'm just, I just, the world's, uh, the world is uh, absolutely opening up to you, brother, and God is blessing you. And I'm just so thankful that you've taken the time to talk to us about a pretty interesting topic, because I think any pastor who's been a pastor for any amount of time has run into the issue of having a funeral that he does not feel comfortable doing. And there can be a lot of guilt for that pastor associated with declining to perform or officiate a funeral for someone. I think we could say the same thing about weddings and other official acts, too. But today we're going to focus on funerals. And uh, I know you've done a lot of research in this area. I'm really looking forward to hearing about it. But why don't, before we go any further, let's just start with some prayer. And then if you could lead us in that prayer. And then I'm going to have you kind of introduce the problem uh, before we get into what the scriptures say about it. Sure. Let's let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks, especially in this Easter season, that you have given your son, Christ Jesus, into death. And by his resurrection, confirm that we have the hope of resurrection and faith, uh, uh, by faith in him and his resurrection that we look forward to and we love to proclaim in your church. And so it is difficult when at times we recognize that there is an absence of faith and that we must proclaim and point people still to the gospel that there is resurrection only by faith in Christ. And so we ask that you would bless our study as we examine your scriptures this morning and study uh, how we can best proclaim that gospel message and point people to Christ and his resurrection, even in the, dif in the difficult circumstances surrounding death and those times. So bless our study now by your Holy Spirit. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen, brother. So what is the issue here? I'm, I guess I guess set the stage for why this is a problem at all. Yeah, so I'll actually kind of back up to 2020, you know, before the world got really crazy. Uh, I attended the uh, uh, Theological Symposia uh, at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, and I remember uh, Dr. Rune Imberg uh, was giving a presentation there. He's a pastor in the Church of Sweden, which is a Lutheran church. Um, and he was talking about the kind of the challenges of being a confessional Lutheran in a church like Sweden. And, uh, and he made an offhanded comment. It wasn't even in his paper. Like, you can go find his paper, and uh, it wasn't in there. So he made an offhanded comment as he was presenting that, you know, there are some unique challenges when you are— operating underneath a state church, uh, as that is in Sweden. And uh, the, the offhanded comment he made was, he said, you know, you guys don't understand this in the United States that, you know, a lot of times we're kind of put in a position to do funerals for people who, yes, have been baptized, but have never really been in the church. And it's just kind of, they view it as their right to be baptized and to get a, a Christian funeral at death, but have not lived the faith. And uh, several guys went up to him afterwards, myself included, and all shared, well, well, while we may not know what that's like in terms of like being a state church and, and actually having like a, a legitimate right, according to the law, to, to receive that and those sorts of challenges, we nonetheless experienced those challenges. And uh, I had experienced them many times in my pastoral ministry. And, uh, and to be sure, it's never a it's never a happy situation, especially in the moment of grief and everything to, to just state the honest truth of saying, Hey, you know, this is one who yes, was baptized, but they, they really walked away from their baptismal faith. Uh, they didn't live in that. They acted like it didn't matter in their lives. They didn't darken the door of a church. 
And uh, it's difficult to proclaim the hope that we have by faith in Christ, which our Christian funeral, especially that we have in our Lutheran service book, so beautifully proclaims in that moment. It's really difficult to proclaim that when there's been no evidence of faith. And, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, when you and I were in seminary together and so forth, in our pastoral theology classes, and uh, um, I'm not sure if you and I had the pastoral theology class together, uh, but at, at the one that I was in, uh, at least at that time, we were still using H.C. Fritz, Dr. John H.C. Fritz's uh, pastoral theology as our textbook. Um, and uh, in there, you know, we're even taught that, you know, a Christian pastor shouldn't do a funeral when there's no evidence of faith. A lot of our church constitutions will also point to this as well. We sometimes talk about being, you know, a member in good standing at a church. Now, a lot of times those sorts of things aren't really enforced or anything like that. Uh, a lot of our constitutions will provide ways to kind of clean up our rosters, you know, and there's usually a thing in there about self-exclusion, you know, someone staying away either from attending church in general or the Lord's Supper, you know, constitutions kind of vary on on how they define those things and so forth. But generally it's in there somewhere that, you know, someone who's in good standing and worthy of receiving the, the rights and ceremonies and benefits of being a member of that congregation uh, is someone who comes to church very simply. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that if you don't come to church and don't receive the Lord's gifts uh, that deliver his forgiveness, life and salvation, then you're excluding yourself from receiving any of the other benefits uh, namely some of those rights like marriage or funerals or those sorts of things as well. And so, again, that often puts a pastor in a really difficult situation to have to say, look, you're not, you're not living um, as a Christian, not by your confession and, and uh, by coming to church or those sorts of things. And so uh, we, we kind of have to make that decision to say, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't do this uh, because we don't want to lie. I mean, we have a commandment about that, right? So, you know, that, that we're saying, you know, here are people that, that um, are, are asking for God's blessing, or uh, especially in the case of a funeral, uh, are being laid to rest in the confidence of faith. There's been no evidence of that. I, I really don't know how we can say that without lying. Um, but, you know, again, kind of, you know, from that presentation by Dr. Imberg, and then uh, just also the experience in the parish, uh, especially I've formerly served parishes where you have the cemeteries right there by the congregations. And so, you know, five generations of your family is buried in that cemetery and you kind of view it as your right again, even if you don't really come to church. And so it, I've been in that situation many times. And, and I think in all of these sorts of cases, I just simply come down and say, well, you know, Hey, if, uh, if I'm taught that in my pastoral theology that I'm not supposed to do this, and if the constitution of the congregation even points me to this, you know, that's fine. I think that there's probably reasons for that to be formed, but I really think it's fair, and I think it's fair for people, or the, the Christians in our congregations, um, to, to demand, well, where in Scripture do we get such right. an idea? Because if it's not grounded in Scripture, then it's just kind of a human idea. And so I, I really have dug into scripture to kind of evaluate um, why would we do this according to scripture? Why would we decline to do that? And especially I kept it my focus uh, as I included in my prayer that the common idea, like in, you, if you ever have to do this as a pastor where you decline or you're, um, you know, uh, to decline to do a funeral, 
um, because there's not evidence of faith. They'll do a Google search and you can easily do a Google search and you'll find lots of stuff out there where lots of people of all sorts of different denominations and everything will say, well, of course you should do it because it's an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. It's for the living, not the dead anyway, and those sorts of ideas. And I contend, not to give away the rest of our show here, but I contend that even in declining to do a Christian funeral, a Christian pastor does still proclaim the gospel in that moment. It's just mm. to be sure, as sometimes we see in scripture, um, uh, a little offensive to get there if we don't come at it with repentance and faith and our understanding of it. Yeah, so I'm going to interject with some, you know, with my personal experiences, ones I'm sure you've also had, and and that is we tend to be taught things in seminary, and we tend to be uh, trotted up in front of the congregation to swear to confessions, uh, to uphold these confessions, which the lay people who are calling us to swear to them often have not read themselves. And then we go to uh, operate according to our the way we've been formed to be pastors and according to the confessions by which we've, you know, uh, uh, I guess bound ourselves. And then of course the scriptures, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, so often it, it just, it seems to be in, co in conflict with the way people feel. And I love how you brought up the two tropes that we often hear, you know, well, funerals are for the living, not the dead. And so the concept there, and it's certainly a nice sounding one is that, well, you know, it, the person who died, I'm not going to get up there and preach him into heaven and growing up down south and seeing what we used to call marrying and burying Sam's, right? The pastors who really all they did was show up to marry somebody or bury them. And they would preach a funeral for anybody. And then that funeral would, would again, focus on converting the people in the audience. And now we don't exactly work this way, but in the uh, uh, decision theology traditions down south, you know, I my my wife's mother's funeral was one that was marked by the pastor constantly telling people, well, if you want to see uh, Donna again, then you need to come up here and give your heart to Jesus. That was the, you know, so he would think that's a gospel opportunity. That's certainly not the way we define gospel. But even our own people will say, well, you have, uh, you know, Joe Schmo's family, and Joe's passed away, and the family— um, he, he never came to church. He never did some of the things that you indicate. But if, if we weren't to do the funeral, then we'll never see any of the family again. They'll be all mad. And I've actually experienced that where a family did get mad because I didn't perform a funeral and we lost members over it. Um, so hopefully the idea of going to Scripture to put ourselves under the authority of Scripture for this will be helpful for people because oftentimes they don't, they don't quite understand you know, what they've bound us to. And hopefully we're going to go into that. I'm, I'm, I know we will, actually. Yeah, for sure. And and there really is a, a lot of scripture to get into in this. And if I may add on to this, too, I mean, because especially as you talk about other traditions, and, and again, when I mentioned, like, if you go on Google, you'll find kind of that idea presented by a lot of pastors of other traditions, even though we feel that tension and we see it happen and, and pastors really struggle with this and and uh, and those sorts of things, even with our own tradition. But uh uh, we do have to acknowledge that those other traditions have different theologies at work of what they're doing there. And yeah, I've, I've experienced the South, my vicarage was in Louisiana and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen, uh, happen where, where you have an altar call, you know, at, at the funeral. And I just remember mm -hmm. thinking, well, this is really weird, you know, but that that's their theology at work behind there. And so, you know, I'll, I'll just simply respect it. 
uh, and let them answer for themselves and wrestle with scripture. But for ourselves, again, you know, to just kind of bring in the frame here. So like, you know, if we take a look at our Christian funeral service that we use in the Lutheran church, uh, commonly, uh, as, as in our Lutheran service book, you know, we begin with the, the remembrance of baptism, which cites scripture from Romans six, right? That this, uh, and holy baptism, this person, we, we say the name was clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness that covered all his or her sin. And St. Paul says, do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And then continues on, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we're making the proclamation right at the beginning of the funeral service that this one, right, who we are gathered here to hear about Christ in the moment, we shouldn't lose that our focus either. That's that's a particular focus that we have in the Christian funerals. It's focused on proclaiming Christ. But that opportunity is made by this one who has died and we're making a proclamation of the faith that this one has had, that they they have been clothed with Christ and his righteousness. And so even while um, we're gathering to remember this one who has departed, we're, we're proclaiming they're with Christ. Uh, again, I'm not sure that we can say that with great confidence uh, when there's not been an evidence of that. And, and we'll have to wrestle with uh, some questions about, well, can we say that someone walked away from their baptism or, or those sorts of things? Uh, because then also uh, the other thing that gets really difficult for us is uh, in the uh, prayer, the college appointed for the funeral service, uh, we say the words that uh, they have finished their course in faith and now rest from their labors. Again, we're pointing to the evidence of faith. And if there's not been that evidence, it makes it really difficult to make these statements and not just be lying and providing a false witness which certainly scripture has a lot to say about that idea as well. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to set that framework up a little bit too, that especially for us as Lutherans, we have a particular uh, focus of what we're doing in that Christian funeral. One of the things I think is prevalent throughout our American culture, maybe even the world culture, is it seems that whenever anyone dies, especially if they're famous for some reason, uh, they're automatically in heaven, right? Have you? Ever, I've even heard unbelievers who on the other hand, will always claim there's no God, and then if someone, one of their favorite artists die, then they speak colloquially of them being in heaven or at peace or looking down or something like that. And and you'll have you know Steve Jobs and and Prince and and a dozen other different people all in heaven hanging out with each other, even though all of those people had different um, confessions of faith or confessions of no faith or you know, or they're completely uh, false religion uh, adherents. So, you know, I, I guess people maybe fall into this idea, especially at the time of mourning that, well, everybody's just going to go to heaven, right? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the obvious, you know, uh, working of the law that is written on our hearts that there there are consequences for sin, and that is death. And you know, death is terrifying to us. And, and we try, we're very much like the, the ancient Romans uh, and what the first century Christians experienced and so forth, that we just try to put death out of our minds so much. We try to ignore it. We try to, you know, uh, just soothe our troubled consciences uh, with this reality so much that uh, it does lead to a lot of those kind of ironic statements. I mean, you mentioned a few. I, one that I've encountered a few times are from people who, 
outright tell me, and, and some of them even claim to be Christian and, and thank goodness, most of the time when I've encountered this, it's uh, they're, they're of other denominations and so forth that uh, may reflect those theologies. But I've heard them say, you know, I don't believe in a heaven or, or a hell or anything like that. I mean, they just outright state it, you know, and they, they just kind of say that as their, their life philosophy. But then a loved one dies or someone, you know, a, a friend or something like that. And uh, again, because they're wrestling with the finality of that and, and, you know, the uncomfortable feelings that come with that, then they make strange statements like, you know, well, I know they're up in heaven looking down on us. And it's like, but you told me you don't even believe in this, right? <laughs> you know, so it, it creates an ironic uh, situation. Um, but I think when we see this in our culture pervading, it's the fact that, you know, this is real and, and it does trouble us. And I think rightly so. It's, it's meant to do so, so that it would lead us to repentance and faith in Christ as our salvation. Um, but uh, sadly, we do so much to quiet our minds and to dismiss the anxiety and and just angst that we feel um, over death and that loss and, and that there are going to be real consequences uh, that come as a result of life uh, that's either lived in faith or not. And so, you know, it's, it's better to, to turn in repentance and faith for sure. But uh, sadly, there there is quite uh, there are many quite that go the other way, right? So we've talked about the fact that, you know, not everybody goes to heaven. I preached a sermon to that extent once. Uh, there is a uh, leader of a very large church body, a Lutheran church body, that said uh, that she's not sure if there's a hell, and if it does exist, it's empty. So we see even within other traditions, uh, and within our own too, people want to deny the reality that God's wrath is real and that he is just. And it will it, it does away with the righteousness of Christ and his propitiation when we refuse to believe that we are actually sinners deserving of such things. But then baptism, right? We, we know that baptism gives faith. It requires faith, uh, but it gives that which it requires, which is God's grace. Uh, and that saves us. But you, you brought it up earlier. Can a person who's baptized I mean, are they just sort of forever saved then? I mean, you know, what about the fact that the Holy Spirit, you know, promises to never leave them? And so even if they're not in church, certainly they can still be a Christian. I mean, those are a couple other questions that people might have. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as I've wrestled with this, I, you know, perhaps it's because I used to host a show called Concord Matters where we took into the confessions <laughs> and I, I just have a very catechetical mind, but I... I tended to organize my thoughts and look, there's a series of questions that we have to wrestle with here and one will kind of lead to the next. And, and what you bring up there are kind of the first natural questions that we, I think we need to wrestle with, um, which is uh, first, will everyone go to heaven? Is there, the, you know, the technical term for this would be universal salvation. Um, and what does scripture have to say about that? And then that's going to lead to the next uh, logical question as well, uh, which you also brought in is, is it possible then for a baptized person to fall from the faith and be eternally lost? And so let's dig into those. Uh, if you're you're ready to kind of take a look at some scripture passages here and do let's some do theology and, and dig into it. And so on that question of will everyone go to heaven, is there universal salvation? I, I think we should look at at least three. There, there are definitely, uh, with all of these, more uh, passages that could certainly be brought in and considered. Um, but I think there's at least three that are very clear and should uh, give us a good answer for that. So first, I'd like to look at Luke 3, uh, verses 23 and 24. So there, 
uh, someone said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. All right. Uh, the next one I want to look at is Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. There Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. All right, so we, we definitely are finding that uh, Jesus is quite clear that uh, uh, there, there are many who are not going to be entering uh, by that narrow way. Um, and uh, we're seeing some exclusivity of Jesus here. Um, uh, I think it gets also a little more clear in a parable that he gives that we see in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And I'll read those briefly as well here. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So, of course, in that parable, we know that the, the wedding feast is the image of heaven and the feast of heaven that uh, we are invited to. But uh, we see here that Jesus is very clear that heaven is exclusive. Uh, some, in fact, many will not be saved. And his kingdom is so exclusive, in fact, that he sternly teaches that those who ignore his invitation, that's what we see in the parable, uh, even seemingly using legitimate excuses such as having no, having to work or, um, you know, at, at least for me, I follow the one-year lectionary. So this parable comes up in the, in the lectionary. I know it shows up at some point in the three-year lectionary as well. So I'll, I'll leave a fuller treatment of this uh, to your pastor as he preaches and teaches this to you. Um, but uh, uh, we, we definitely see here that, uh, uh, you know, the, these seemingly uh, legitimate excuses actually make Jesus angry and kindle his wrath upon them uh, for rejecting his invitation. Uh, and uh, that, that tells us of the primacy of putting Christ first uh, in our lives and receiving his invitation. We see this uh, especially also in Luke 9. Uh, when Jesus uh, tells a man to follow him, he says, oh, let me go bury him, uh, my father. Uh, and Jesus responds to him, let the dead bury their own dead. I think that's an important text for us to consider as well, is that uh, you know, Jesus is making it clear here. I mean, uh, certainly earlier in Luke 7, we see Jesus raiding, raising the widow's son at Nain. Uh, so Jesus wants to raise the dead from life. He cares uh, about that. Um, but uh, I think in Luke 9, we see also, that, again, that exclusivity of Jesus that says, 
look, you're, you're not putting me first. You're, you're trying to put other things first before following me and living faithfully to me. Um, let, let the dead handle their dead. Uh, uh, and so, you know, even those agree, who agree with Jesus's teaching on these sorts of things, that this is clearly in scripture, multiple places, we could go to so, so many others, um, that uh, while it's true that uh, some may not be saved, uh, we generally like to think of it, well, you know, but that's like, and see, I wonder, like you mentioned, uh, the other church body that also bears the name Lutheran, um, that, uh, you know, their bishop uh, uh, said that hell is empty and so forth. I mean, like, do they really think that Hitler's not there or something or Osama right. bin Laden? I mean, generally, you'll get them to concede that point, right? You know, so uh, so while even some may say, well, of course, yeah, some are going to hell. Obviously, you know, uh, there's really, really bad people. And it's usually just the people they don't like. Well, somebody liked them, you know, uh, so right, somebody sure. thinks that uh, they're in heaven as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll not quite say that hell is empty. Um, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, surely those who are baptized and, and those whom I know and loved, and they were really good people or those sorts of things, um, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, they're not going to hell, right? And so I think that that then leads to that question about, you know, is it possible for a baptized person, the one who has been clothed in Christ's righteousness, that, that is objective, Christ does that by his promise as he attaches it to the water as we teach about baptism, um, but is it essentially uh, possible then to walk away from your baptism, to fall from the faith and be eternally lost? And that wrestles with that question of once saved, always saved. Uh, I'll let you interject and jump in there if you want. Well, I'm going to because we're right up against a break. I'm just enjoying listening to you expound on it. But you know what? We do have to take a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back in just a few minutes, we're going to keep on going, hearing Pastor Sean explain exactly what's going on. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa, talking to us about why some pastors or sometimes pastors cannot accept a funeral. But before we get back into that, I'm so grateful that you've joined us this morning, whether it's live or on the air or live or on demand um, at uh, kfuo.org or as a podcast. Kind of messing stuff up this morning. But folks, what I want to get to is that you can still be a part of Shareathon. Go to kfo.org, click on the Shareathon banner, or give Mary a call at 314 996 1518. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook to drop by and say hello. 
Well, Pastor, before the break, we were just talking or just getting into um, the once saved, always saved sort of concept. Can someone walk away from their baptism? I'll tell you what, I'm stumbling over my words today, so I'm grateful to just hear how you're explaining this so deftly. I, it's, it's, it's very good because I think this is a question that a lot of people have. You know, we put so much faith, hope, and trust in the Lord's work through baptism, as well we should, but sometimes we use it as, and I think sinfully, as a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? I'm baptized. I don't have to do anything else. Or I'm Lutheran, right? So anything beyond just being baptized is me trying to work my way into heaven. Those ideas are patently false. I'm sure you'll explain to us how. Yeah, for sure. And if you're familiar with uh, other theological traditions and those sorts of things, uh, this once saved, always saved idea belongs to the Reformed tradition, uh, you know, contemporaries of Luther, uh, especially, uh, we see this in John Calvin and, and his uh, theology that he put out. But uh, Lutherans, we don't accept that teaching because we don't believe that it is faithful to Scripture. And yet I would argue that a lot of times this dominates so much of American thinking. I think Reformed theology has dominated, uh, especially what we see in American evangelicalism, um, you know, kind of your your broad um kind of uh, American evangelical church, whether that be non-denominational or even kind of your Southern Baptists or, you know, a lot of those sorts of things all come out of that reformed theology. And that has really dominated the, the American scene, especially. And I think leads to some of those things that you talked about earlier, where, you know, when someone dies, we just assume that because it was someone we liked that, of course, they're in heaven, right? You know, and, and we'll often point to, uh, you know, especially again, because we, we do pretty good to, you, you talked about earlier, you know, uh, kind of the, the, the tropes that are sent out there, you know, about these sorts of things. You know, one I've heard is uh, we hatch them, match them and dispatch them. Right. You know, so we we baptize them and then we marry them and then we we give them the Christian funeral. And, and again, what we're saying here is, is no, all of those sorts of things are centered around the faith. And so while baptism certainly stands, um, we as Lutherans on the basis of scripture do believe that you can fall after baptism. And I think that's explained really well. I'm just going to go to our our small catechism that uh, really the explanation of it that our church body uh, through Concordia Publishing House makes available. I think that explanation, especially in the later edition there, um, I, I have the 2011 edition that came out, you know, uh, right on page 295 and 296, it asked that very question. And I'll just read what it simply answers in response to this. It says, yes, it is true that God's promises and baptism stand, even if we don't believe them. However, all who reject God's promises to them and die in unbelief have abandoned baptism and do not receive what God has promised. They will be lost. And to support that point that they make, uh, they cite 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, they also cite Luke 8, verse 13. That's from the parable of the sower, where we hear, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And they also cite 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly states that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then I would also throw in there again, we could throw in lots of other ones, but Mark 16, 16, I think is, is a very important one. And one that I often speak uh, in connection with the blessing that I give upon the baptized, uh, especially as they come forward with their parents to receive the Lord's Supper. I just speak the promises of God that we see in Mark 16, that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. 
But that verse goes on and says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so it puts the, the emphasis on belief that goes with baptism. Uh, you, you could check out other things, uh, again, just kind of being one of those guys that likes to look at the confessions and study the confessions as, as great Bible studies on these sorts of topics. You can check out the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, Article 12 on repentance on this. Uh, it talks about this falling after baptism. Also, the Formula of Concord, uh, Article 11 on God's eternal foreknowledge. Uh, you know, what we would sometimes call predestination or that kind of idea uh, better understood as God's eternal foreknowledge. It, it wrestles with those sorts of things too. But to kind of summarize here, I mean, so we see faith and baptism go together for salvation. Uh, but we also have to realize there are tragic consequences uh, that we can fall uh, from our baptism. We can we can walk away in unbelief from the gifts that are delivered to us in baptism and, uh, and so the, the Christian should then earnestly desire to nourish that faith, to feed that faith, um, uh, or as we, we hear in Jesus's great uh, commission, right, uh, that he gives to his disciples, that we baptize and teach, right? And sometimes we do really well, especially in Lutheran churches, of getting that baptism in, uh, but sometimes we don't support it with the teaching. And so we want to feed and nourish that faith and, and support it with teaching and so that we can remain steadfast in the faith until death and have the assurance and and hear those words of assurance spoken to us by our pastor uh, at our deathbed that they come and, and comfort us and say, uh, Christ has promised to deliver this to you and and you've hung on to and clung to this gift and and it is yours. And, uh, and so we certainly want to point to that and we should desire to remain in that uh, uh, as we as we live our Christian faith. Um, so, uh, you know, Christ himself has promised to be there. Uh, with us and to deliver us. And so uh, Christians should seek every opportunity um, to to do that. Uh, and of course, we do that well by just simply coming to church, right? We, we feed our faith through word and sacrament. Now, of course, at that, there will always come kind of a next question that I think we have to wrestle with, which is sometimes there's uh, special circumstances, right, that present difficulties right. in, in being able to come to church or those sorts of things. And so I think that'll lead to a, another question that's somewhat related, that does a person need to go to church to be a Christian? Right. I mean, the idea is that, well, I could be a Christian anywhere. If God is everywhere, then I don't have to go uh, some special place. He's just as present on the fishing boat or from my couch or through the internet, even if maybe I just watch from home. You know, that's adding another dimension to what we have to uh, have to consider. And, you know, one of the things that I always, and I, we can't rely on emotions, of course, but I think there are desires within people to be where God is gathering his people. And some people desire to be there and cannot make it, literally cannot make it. And then there are some who, I guess, use it as an excuse not to gather. And maybe it's a little bold of me, but a Christian will want to be where God's people are. He will want to receive God's gifts, uh, and she will want to receive what God offers in the sacraments and the Word. And and when they don't want those things, I, I think it, it draws up a question, you know, at least for themselves, of uh, do I really honor Christ as God and Lord if I don't? you know, if I don't follow or want to be where he gathers us. But yeah, I mean, do does a person need to go to church to be a Christian? Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Tell us. Well, yeah, I think let's just dig into scripture on it again. So Matthew 7, 21 to 23 tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is clear here that not even everyone who calls out his holy name is a true Christian, right? True faith will be evidenced by doing the will of God, he says. And so I think we can also look at James uh, chapter 2, 19 through 20, uh, that speaks to this. Uh, you will believe that God is one, good for you. Or sorry, you believe that God is one, James 2 says, good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. O foolish man, do you want evidence that, fit, that faith without deeds is worthless? So therefore, while, while we teach, we do teach that according to scripture, that faith alone saves. That's, that's what was at the center of the Reformation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 makes that very clear. We also believe from scripture that that faith is never alone in this, right? It will always be accomplished uh, and be evidenced by the fruits of faith, uh, giving evidence of that Christian faith that is living and active within them. And um, so scripture teaches us that true Christians keep Jesus's commands, which include going to church, right? Uh, we, we see this, uh, you know, in, in many places, but I think most clearly, obviously, the third commandment. And and this is where maybe I'm not a good pastor all the time, because, you know, when this question comes up, and I'm sure you hear it probably more than I do that, you know, I can worship God out on the boat, out on the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping God out on the lake or whatever. Well, you live in the land of a thousand lakes, right? So you probably <laughs> hear that a lot more uh, as people love to get out and enjoy that. Uh, but uh, uh, I hear that even just south of you here in, in, in northern Iowa uh, as well. And, uh, you know, so sometimes I like to, you know, push back a little bit and I say, well, yeah, so you say you believe, but, uh, you know, Jesus says that you'll do his, you'll follow his commands, right? He makes that clear in scripture. So, so how are you doing with that third commandment, right? Uh, and so, you know, we know the third commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Luther teaches us well, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, uh, despise their, uh, sometimes we have a wrong understanding of what that means. Despise just means to think little of, right? So we think it unimportant in a sense, right? So we don't want to despise preaching his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it to, to run at every opportunity. Again, I think our uh, catechism, small catechism explanation uh, covers this in an excellent question and answer uh, on page uh, 75 and 76, that explanation in 2011 edition. Uh, it says, we fear God and love God by not despising or neglecting his word. And it goes on to say and describe that we despise and neglect God's word by failing to gather together and worship to receive God's word and sacraments. And they cite Hebrews 10 for this. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then it also gives a second point on this, that rejecting or disregarding God's word uh, is, is also how we despise and neglect God's word. And they cite Luke 10. Uh, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So, of course, our minds quickly think of situations in which a Christian desires to join with the body of Christ for worship, uh, but may be prevented by some insurmountable circumstance uh, when we see that, uh, you know, kind of this is leading us to our next question. Uh, well, of course, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I want to keep the third commandment, but you know, I've got this going on and that that prevents me, right? So so what then? Of course, you know, the Christian hungers and thirsts for the righteousness. They want to be in church, but there are things preventing them like work or something like that. Um, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, they, they may be shut in or something like that. And so, 
you know, this, this question of does a person need to go to church to be a Christian, I think is obvious. Um, a Christian will go to church, right? They, they desire right. to receive this. Um, uh, but then, you know, are you saying that my shut-in grandma isn't going to heaven because she can't go to church? And maybe she even has an unresponsive pastor who hasn't been visiting her like he should with the sacrament. Um, well, but, this, uh, I mean, this definitely brings up one of the biggest issues that we face, not necessarily when it comes to funerals, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We have a, a, a I guess a, we call it closed communion, but all it really is, is that communion is exercised according to the way God has commanded it, and that is those who are not uh, worthy, who have not prepared themselves or unable to prepare themselves because they've not been taught, they're not invited to the rail because, well, they might uh, take it to their condemnation. So out of love, we restrict it. But we often hear people say, well, but, you know, then you're saying they're not Christian. And we say, nope, that's not what we're saying at all. So I guess that leads me to where I believe you're going. And that is, if we have closed funerals, so to speak, we only have funerals for those not only who are on our rolls, which typically is the way that I think most churches will do funerals. Well, if they're on the roll, even if we've never seen them, then they have the right for the funeral. But we're saying, if you're saying, um, well, you know, one really needs to be a Christian, needs to have demonstrated uh, empirical piety, what we might like to say, which is just there's some evidence of their faith so that we're not perjuring ourselves before God. Um, but wouldn't we be accused of making a judgment on whether or not they're actually Christian? So you're, as you said, so you're saying Grandma Schlitzendinger, who's passed away, wasn't a Christian. Are you, are you, are you judging her? Are you condemning her to hell? So how would we respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds judgmental, right? And that's the argument that is often brought in with the issue of closed communion, which you brought up there, um, that, uh, you know, well, you're just being judgmental, Pastor. And uh, it's interesting that you bring up close communion as well, because when you you asked me to be on for Free Text Friday and kind of left it open to whatever I wanted to talk about, mm -hmm. I, I wrestled between, uh, you know, maybe I just like taking on really hard subjects or something. I don't know, but I said, <laughs> do, you know, do I want to take on close communion? I kind of have a catechetical approach that I think through Scripture, and you know, because again, it's fine that we have that practice, but how does Scripture lead us to that idea? Uh, and then I was also, you know, toying with the, the idea that we have here, which is, you know, that uh, a pastor may decline to do a Christian funeral, even for someone who's on the rolls, right? You know, and that's an uncomfortable thing. And I think this is kind of the root question of both of those issues, which is, you are so judgmental in the Lutheran church, right? You know, and sometimes even leads to the idea that some wrongly think that we say only Lutherans are going to be in heaven or something like that, which is obviously not right. true. We never say that. Um, but uh, although I might say that they'll find out that they were really Lutheran all along when they are there. They were Lutheran, but, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, nonetheless, you know, so, so I mean, we have to wrestle with this question. Uh, can a human being, such as a pastor, right, judge whether another person has living faith, right? You know, are, are we allowed to be judgmental, essentially? Uh, I think there are several passages that we should look at here. So I'll just run through them uh, here. Matthew 7, 16 through 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, uh, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. James 2 again, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not works? Can faith save him? So also faith by itself, if it is not, if it does not have works, is dead. First John 3, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then from Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account, talking about pastors here especially. To this end, allow them to lead with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So from these passages, of course, it's evident that true faith will be plainly seen in the life and actions of the Christian. There's going to be those fruits of faith. And it's also evident then that scripture has placed this, especially upon pastors, but you know, if, if there's going to be evidence of these fruits, then clearly uh, pastors are going to have to make some judgments. I mean, I, I think it's strange when we talk about this idea that, well, nobody can judge me except for God or those sorts of things. Like, well, then why do we have a whole job and vocation in the world known as judges, right? <laughs> we, mm -hmm. we, we clearly uh, do need to make judgments, especially kind of in our horizontal righteousness, but, but even uh, in terms of uh, and civil life in this world. But, uh, but even in terms of within the church, right, um, this, is, this is how we lead people to repentance and faith is we take a look at the fruit and we say, hey, you're heading a he dangerous direction there that's leading you away from Christ. I mean, St. Paul does this in all his letters, you know, repent and turn back to Christ. And uh, we can't do that unless we're actually making some judgments on the fruits or lacks there, lack thereof of the faith that we see evident in them. Absolutely. I mean, that empirical piety is what's really important, because while we don't judge people's hearts, that is, we're not saying, yes, you're going to hell. Um, at least I don't think that's what you're saying. What I would say is, you know, your lack of uh, your lack of faith is or you're, you're demonstrating a lack of faith or you're in danger of being going to hell. Outside. We leave that final judgment to God. But it's absolutely our job as pastors in particular and, and as fellow Christians to make sure that we are encouraging one another to walk that, that life and, and, be, and live according to God's will. For sure. I mean, and I always say, especially when I talk about this, that, um, you know, Jesus, of course, gets the decision on the day of judgment uh, of where, where the destination is. Right. And thank goodness that he gets the decision and not me. Um, and we believe that that is a decision that he will make by his grace through faith, right. Uh, for those who have faith in him. And so our job then as pastors or really even as fellow Christians is this is how I often teach in confirmation what the nature of repentance is, right. You know, to repent is to turn, you're going one direction that is leading to destruction and to repent is to turn and to go a more faithful direction. So I often give the example, like imagine someone's blindly walking towards a cliff, right? They're, they're going to walk off that cliff. They don't see it. They're going to they're gonna fall and hurt themselves very badly or die, right? And so you run up to them and you say, hey, 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 stop. You know, you're, you're going a direction that is bad. You know, turn around and, and go this way, better way. And, uh, you know, it would be a foolish person that would just sit there at that and say, well, well, who are you to judge me? I'm going the whatever way I want to go, right? Whatever makes me happy. And it's like, okay, but it's going to be really bad for you, right? I mean, like, 
Uh, and so it's so much strange that we we wrestle with this because obviously we would make a judgment in that situation that they're clearly going to somewhere in their harm. And so it's it's a loving thing to call them to repentance, um, uh, which which does make us have to, you know, well, that's just what we're doing. Right. Right. Well, in the last few minutes we have left in the show, I guess, you know, the question is, if we agree that pastors should not uh, perform funerals for certain people because of the reasons you've given, and I think they're very compelling reasons founded upon Scripture, what do we do? What is the pastoral approach? What do we say to people who don't really understand that and aren't prepared to listen to uh, an hour Bible study on the topic? Yeah, so I I think, you know, one one other thing that I I want to briefly cover on this is, especially with that pastoral responsibility, and again, lots of scripture passages we could look at on this, but um, uh, I, I want to take a look at Ezekiel 3, uh, and it says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whatever you hear, Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If you say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and if I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. I think that's very foundational for us as pastors and related to what I was just talking about and why we preach repentance and faith. It is loving. It is, I would say, the clear proclamation of the gospel that when we do not perform a Christian funeral, we're, we're telling people, we're not giving them a false understanding. Well, this person's okay. They're in heaven. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, especially in these cases, a lot of times there's family members who are also living this way. Um, we are preaching repentance to them. Look, there are serious consequences. You're going a dangerous way. Repent, turn in faith to Christ. Um, so we are proclaiming the gospel, which is repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, and by not doing a funeral, um, and and so that that wants to be that should be our focus, and that at least in me inspires every every ounce of energy that I have as a pastor to do that in my regular ministry before we ever get to the point of a funeral. This is why, although it's exhausting, right, and and sometimes a difficulty because you call and you call and they don't want to. They don't want to hear from you. They don't want to see you, but they want to keep their name on the roster just in case this Jesus thing turns out to be real or they need a Christian funeral mm -hmm. or whatever. I kind of get a little snarky on these things. Sorry. But, sure. uh, you know, uh, they, they reject your call and reject your visits. And I keep trying to make every member visits or I keep trying to to reach out to them and call them to repentance. Return to the church. Find your hope and your salvation in Christ Jesus, your Lord. That's what every pastor wants to proclaim, because what I want to do is that the the day of their death, right? Uh, or when Christ returns, which we expect at any moment, that we stand there with confidence and we can and we can say, this is one who has finished the course in faith. Praise be to God. And that's not because the work that I did as a pastor or uh, or anything like that. It's just simply the work that he has done 
through the promises of his word. And, uh, and that's my joy as a pastor and as a brother Christian and everything else to continually point people to it and that they would find their hope and assurance of salvation in Christ, because that is their comfort through this life and in the day of their death and certainly on that day of judgment. Well, brother, that's where we're going to have to leave it, but I appreciate you being on the show. This is the Reverend Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. Thanks again for being on. I look forward to having you on in the future. My great pleasure, guys. Peace to you. Well, folks, come back Monday as we continue our study of 1 Samuel with chapter 8. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.